Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. I am back. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're here Wednesdays and Fridays from 9 to 11 on Vermont Viewpoint. My next guest is a writer, an entrepreneur, a founder of many businesses, a board member extraordinaire. I think he's chaired the board of virtually every nonprofit organization in the state, and a broad thinker who arrived in Waterbury, Vermont in 1947 on a steam train before riding what we used to call a jitney to Morrisville with his mother, where he would grow up. His latest column, uh, I assume it's been published in VT Digger by now, and on his own website is about food and what I call the food industrial complex. The title, We Are Poisoning Ourselves, his name is Bill Schubert, and we welcome him to the program. Hello, Bill. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. Oh, gosh, my pleasure. I, I'm a little jealous. I've long wanted to take this issue on. I, I've written about it, but I haven't taken it on on this radio show. So you beat me to the punch, and you've given me an excuse to really uh, explore this in depth. So so start us off. I, I've got your column in front of me. I'll tell people uh-huh. where they can find it. But start us off about what led you to write the column and, and why? Well, it's it's actually been a number of things. You know, you know how ideas take root in you. You know, you, you see this and you go, oh, my gosh, and then you experience that and you say, whoa. And then all of a sudden at some point all these inputs kind of converge into, yep. you know, a, a larger concept. And they're often, very often, very you know, very emotionally charged. And I find when I write a column that I very often, you know, sit down either in anger or fear or whatever, and I write a first draft, and then I have to go back through and take all the emotion out and make sure that it's, you know, really fact-based. And I I think the real genesis of it was my own real struggle with food that, you know, I, I was not born a fat kid, but... Um, food was a big deal in our family and, you know, I, I can remember, you know, cuddling up on the couch with my parents and, you know, eating, you know, not good food. And over the long haul, I managed to get up to 485 pounds and realized, you know, that this was not sustainable and all through my childhood, people would pat me on the head and say, what a nice kid. What a shame you're so heavy. Of course, you won't live a day past 50. Right. And I heard that all my life. So my 50th birthday was like, you know, I was kind of staring at the horizon, wondering what was coming over the over the top. But um, I'm 78 now. And long story short, uh, I went into treatment. It was not a fancy spa. It was not, you know, one of the $30,000 places. I think the whole thing was like six or 7000 bucks for a month. And it was in a disused uh, hospital in Florida, um, really funky. And they dealt with alcohol, drugs, and eating disorders. And over the course of 30 days, I learned that, you know, I actually was addicted to refined carbohydrates, sugar, flour, and wheat. And the real difficulty in weight loss for so many people is, as they say, well, alcoholics and drug addicts have it easy because they they can just, you know, lock their, their um, you know, their addictive stuff into a cage and throw away the key, whereas, you know, eating disorders, people have to open the cage and let it out three times a day. So there was no abstinence model. But the great blessing of going down to this place was there was an abstinence model. They said you can eat anything you want, but you will absolutely abstain from sugar, flour, and wheat, which I did for two years. And in a very slow, efficient way, I managed to lose 244 pounds over two years, very healthy. Um, And the whole obsession 
with eating just went away. And now at 78, you know, I enjoy occasionally, you know, a few pieces of very high-quality bread with a lot of fiber. Um, I I try to minimize sugar absolutely, Um, you know, but, you know, don't always succeed. It's very difficult in this culture to to buy anything that doesn't have sugar added to it. I mean, try and buy tomato sauce that doesn't have sugar in it. Well, let's let's get to that because uh, you get to it very quickly in your column, and and I I love the way in your columns you you begin with the personal uh, you know an anecdote or two to get us into the story. And you grew up, as you say, in rural Vermont at the dawn of the processed food industry. And I'm a little younger, but you know I remember the TV dinners uh, yeah. and and the sort of the, the beginning of the packaged food and processed food business. Yep. And that was much, much different than what you describe at Patches Market in Morrisville. And we have a yep. lot of listeners in Morrisville. So take us back to Patches in the 1950s and what you saw there. Well, it was a very small market. It was on Main Street, which, you know, in those days was just alive with people. As my grandmother, my French-Canadian grandmother used to say, we were all down there trading. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah. you go into Patches Market, and there'd be a lot of locally, you know, produced um, and only seasonal fruits and vegetables. So when you went in there, as the you know, as the seasons progressed, you'd see different things that were coming up in the garden at different times. There was the classic, you know, cheese wheels, and um, then in his walk-in cooler, which fascinated us as kids, and every once in a while he'd let us go in there, you know, there were carcasses hanging. And somebody would come in and say, well, I need a couple of lamb chops. And Mr. Patch would go in and come out, you know, with a piece of meat and put it on a butcher block and chop it up and wrap it in butcher paper and give it to you. But there was almost no sort of industrial food. I mean, there were there was French's mustard and, you know, Heinz ketchup and, you know, Jell-O and Junket and a few of those things started appearing, and then Kool-Aid. But for, for most, it was, you know, it was stuff that was really regionally produced. Um, and boy, did that ever change. I mean, I got I got a number of emails from people who talked about towns that don't have a grocery anymore, that only have a convenience store, and you go into the convenience store, and there's gas, oil, lottery tickets, soda, junk food, um, you know, tobacco products, and it's almost impossible to find anything healthy. I mean, it, it, you know, imagine the convenience store as the, the sort of quintessence of what's wrong. Yeah, yeah, they sell only the bad stuff, and uh, yeah, yeah, and I and I wonder, and in the minute we have left before our first break, I wonder if we could start. Let's start our discussion about how did that happen? Uh, the, the 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 marketing of of bad food. To the American population, well, I think a lot of it was the advent of television. I mean, we'd always had print advertising. You know, all of us got Look magazine, Time magazine, Life magazine, and there was display advertising. But when the food industry began to really develop and could access television, radio is one thing. You know, you can describe dingalings on the radio, and it doesn't mean anything. But boy, when you show kids gobbling up dingalings, that's a whole different motivation. <laughs> okay. okay, Bill. The inevitably we get to a discussion here about the role of government in regulating uh, the, the big food industry and the big ag industry. But before we get to that, let's stay with sort of what's wrong here and how did it get this way? Why? Why is there so much plastic packaging of unhealthy food in convenience stores uh, that now makes up most of Americans' diet? How did it get this way? Well, I think there are two different things, packaging and food. 
I think food has been a long, complicated process of discovery. I mean, we always assumed that, you know, if we could, if we could produce really cheap milk and really cheap food, that would be a beneficial thing for people because um, they wouldn't have to use such a, a large portion of their their budget um, on food. So we started mass producing food. It got cheaper, um, you know, and and people started gobbling it up. And it was only when obesity became rampant and the obesity-related diseases, um, you know, diabetes and all, all kinds of things, um, became also became rampant was that we began to question, you know, the industrial food supply. So that has been running on a different clock than the issue of packaging. Packaging was simply, you know, how do you, how do you grow carrots in California and deliver them in New England, you know, um, so they won't rot and they look real pretty when you go into the store or, you know, whatever it is. So the packaging industry just exploded. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden, then we started realizing that plastic, you know, unlike paper and so on and so forth, was there forever. I remember flying to the West Coast once. I'm sorry, we were flying, uh, um, we were flying to China, actually. And the pilot you know, said, you know, I'm not supposed to do this, but I want to show you something. And he went from like 35 or 40,000 feet down to about eight or 10,000 feet and flew over the Pacific, what they call the plastic, I can't remember what it's called, but it's yeah. like, you know, this an area half the size of Vermont that's just floating plastic in, in, and it just stunned everybody. But, you know, we're, we get that. And I would argue that our inability for government or our unwillingness for government to actually go in and begin the regulatory process that ensures that food that's produced is healthy and edible and sustainable um, and that the packaging that we put it in is safe and not destructive of the environment um, that's being presented by what I would call corruption. I mean, I, I, I said this at a very large group in Brattleboro, you know, uh, a month ago. Um, you know, I said, we like to say that lobbying is educational, that legislatures can't understand everything or Congress can't understand everything. So lobbyists provide a tremendously valuable support system by educating them. We need to call it what it is. It's corruption, especially when it is accompanied with money, trips. You know, we're reading about this all the time, you know, from the Supreme Court on down to, you know, to, to Congress people. Um, it's corruption. And the capacity, you know, of great wealth and power to simply limit both taxation and regulation is one of the things I think that is driving us into an environmental disaster. Do we need, Bill, uh, I would point out that the show after mine is hosted by our our buddy, uh, Bill Sayer, and yeah. I only wish he was on the show or would call in And because I'm about to ask you about the role of government regulation here, and I suspect yeah. that Professor Sayer would have a different uh, a different take on this, but whether it's uh, sugar milk that's being marketed to toddlers, uh, vending machines in schools, yep. uh, sh you know, should the FDA be regulating the sale of Coca-Cola, for example? I, I would say yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think, and, and I've been on Bill Sierra's show many times. We're good friends. I have great respect for him. In fact, it's very funny when I'm on his show. We always introduce each other and say, "Oh Lord, I got to stop coming on your show because every time I leave your show, I'm a little more conservative." And he said, "I know, I got to stop inviting you on my show because every time you're on, I'm a little more liberal." 
<laughs> which, which, of course, is what we need in this country. But anyway, that aside, um, I would say that the since healthcare is a business instead of a human right in the United States, it's a it's you know it's twenty percent of our GDP and a very highly protected business. Um, however, an awful lot of people in Medicare and Medicaid the government ends up having to pay for their illness. So it's like the old argument, you know, for motorcycle helmets. Somebody coming in in a motorcycle accident with a head injury, if they go into the emergency room, it's typically half a million dollars to to treat them if they can. That's borne by the public. So it's reasonable for the government to say, you know what, you've got to wear a helmet. And I think it's reasonable to say, you know, you can't market sugar-laden drinks to children. Or even to say, yeah, you can, but we're going to tax them at 50%. Right. You know, when Coca-Cola is cheaper than, you know, orange juice or milk or something that's healthy, that's a problem. You know, it's I, I was uh, driving... To New York from Vermont the other day, and I stopped at one of those horrible rest areas yep. on the side on the side of uh, 95. And yeah. you know the 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 only food choices were McDonald's, Burger King, right next yep. to each other, and 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 Americans of all sh- stripes, and I'm talking white people, uh, black and brown people. Uh, yep. Uh, you, recent immigrants, you know, you could just you can see their body shape beginning to change from the from the societies they came from where they were lean and mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they've been exposed to this American diet and their whole body shape is changing. And you can see their their family health just going down the tubes. Yeah, well, even though I have to say that the international marketing of the food, you know, by the food industry um, I've traveled to India, and the first time I went to India, obesity was rare. Yeah. It's rampant now. And yeah. so is McDonald's, you know, and so is the junk food industry. You know, it, it's, I, we are marketing yeah. junk food and obesity to the whole world. So now I'm going to ask you to put on a couple of other hats. Sure. As I said in the intro, you've been the chair of the board of virtually every nonprofit in the state, including UVM Medical Center, and, and you have a, a, a special perspective on healthcare. You cite um, you, you cite a book called Brain Energy by Christopher Palmer, who mm-hmm. a doctor who links the rising tide of mental illness at all age, age levels with environmental degradation and our, from our dependence on chemicals in what we grow and eat. Yep. I, this is, this has got to send, uh, I mean, I, I know Dr. Leffler at, at UVM and sure. I mean, they all know this, uh, but they live at the bottom of a, of a funnel of capitalism and commerce in this country that makes it really tough for them to deal with this. Right. I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to health care, it's a, it's a really complex issue because the United States <clears throat> is an outlier among a th- 130 countries around the world that have chosen to make health care a human right. They've all funded it differently. There's no fixed funding mechanism. It works well in some countries, doesn't work so well in others. The English system is falling apart. But in this country, we continue to believe and function as business is a free market. I mean, healthcare is a free market business. So whatever, you know, whatever sustains and grows that business um, is, you know, we're going to keep supporting. And the difficulty is we all like to talk about population health, and this is a a discussion I often ha- have with healthcare leaders, and I've met with all of them. I've met with Dr. Eppen, Dr. Leffler, um, the chair of the board of, of the Health Network, um, and it's an ongoing discussion. We all talk about population health, but population health is three things. It's not just quality of care. 
which is what they focus on, and they do a pretty darn good job of it. It's also access and affordability. And how many people do you know who, between the time they present in an emergency room with low back pain and the time they're diagnosed with late-stage prostatic cancer and are told they're not going to make it, you know, that is not access. How many people will not get in an ambulance because they're terrified that it will bankrupt them when they go to the hospital? This is not, these are not minority anecdotal stories. These are, this is a, a, the overwhelming part of our population. Bill, it's, I, I've often thought that the first thing out of the mouth of a doctor uh, should not be uh, a pill for weight loss or whatever, but should be a walk in the woods, uh, especially in Vermont. Uh, can you talk about that? I, you know, <clears throat> yes, um, because I think it is so. I think it is so right on. I find I'm not someone who's clinically depressed. I'm someone who I would describe as circumstantially depressed. That's because I wake up at 5:30 in the morning and read the Guardian and the Washington Post, <laughs> and I watch the news at night, and you know, it's depressing. You know, I'm not, as I say, clinically depressed. And when that begins to overwhelm me, I grab a couple of chainsaws and head off into the woods. Or, you know, I may just head off into the woods, period. Um, but I find if I balance um, my psychic exhaustion with physical exhaustion, um, whether it's splitting wood or whatever, um then I recover. <clears throat> it's that yeah. balance. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right on, Kevin. I mean, you know, if a doctor said, hey, you know, go for a long walk, walk in the woods, you know, find your favorite brook as a child and walk yeah. down through the waist-high ferns and stand there and just stare at the water moving over the rocks. You know, that's that to me is one of the most powerful forms of recovery. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and yet, and, and, and in Vermont, we have Vermont Farm to Plate. We have Real Organic. We have yeah. farmer's markets. We have yeah. endless efforts uh, by nonprofit organizations uh, to promote organic food, organic agriculture, healthy eating, good mental yep. health. And yet, we seem to be losing this battle to an overwhelmingly powerful engine of commerce that seek that markets uh, products to us that are unhealthy, and I don't know how we wiggle our way out of that problem. Well, there's a wonderful term <clears throat> that I remember in a discussion I had years ago with Ed Kaladny, um, and it's the sacred cow. You know, the, the whole concept of a cow is so deeply embedded in Vermont. I mean, you know, from the 11,000 hill farms we had when I was a kid, um, you know, to, you know, um, you know, the images on Vermont life when it existed. Right. You know, oh, yeah. Vermont was associated with the sacred cow. And <clears throat> we've clung to that in spite of the fact that there's no market for fluid milk anymore. So much of milk that's produced is either converted to powder for the world commodity market. The only, the only solid markets for, for milk anymore are ice cream, cheese, yogurt, and organic. And those are a small fraction of what we produce. So in our allegiance to the sacred cow, We've created federal and state incentives to keep Vermonters, you know, producing milk and having dairy farms. The problem is the dairy farms that were on the cover of Life magazine were beautiful farms. They were sustainable. They were local. The farms that are producing this milk now are milking anywhere from, you know, 1,000 to I think a high of four or five thousand cows that never see pasture, never see the light of day, are slaughtered after four years, 
<clears throat> and, you know, are just milk machines. And that is not the sacred cow that you and I remember as a child. And we need to let that go. And as you pointed out, the encouraging thing, the walk in the woods, is that, you know, regenerative agriculture is in a rebound in Vermont. I mean, farm to plate, you know, as you say, farmer's markets. My own son, you know, is a regenerative farmer. He is totally focused on the quality of his soil and water. And, you know, the chemical industry is selling us glyphosate, neonicotinoids. And Vermont, you know, for all of our progressive blather, we have not had the courage to make some of these deadly toxic chemicals that you can't grow corn or soy or triticale without applying to the soil. We haven't regulated them. No, no, that's right. It's a, it's a, that. Now there's an issue for another show. Um, yeah, B- B- Bill. As we come to the end, uh, I've got a, about four minutes left, and I can't sure. let you go without asking you. We have spent several shows on Israel and Hamas. Uh, yeah. I've had, I've had the former ambassador to Syria on the show. I've had a, 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 a U.S. citizen who's lived on a kibbutz in northern Israel for yep. 20 years. I've had a Palestinian on the show, and I had Bernie Sanders' uh, former foreign policy advisor, Matt Duss, who is a, a, a respected voice on this issue. And you, you've been a commentator on all things politics, national and local, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I, we th- I think a lot about the vocabulary that we're using. There's yep. free speech involved. How are you thinking about Israel and Hamas right now? Well, it's funny. I'm writing a commentary right as we speak, um, taking UVM to task for canceling the Palestinian poet. Um, I, I think one of the most difficult things is we must give each other permission. And Schubert is a German-Jewish family name. Even though I grew up as a French-Canadian Catholic, and my mother was not Jewish. <laughs> my father was Jewish, yeah. my biological father, who I never knew. So we have to give each other permission to be able to say, I radically oppose the political strategy of the nation of Israel, and I am not an anti-Semite. And I've had this discussion yeah. with somebody who said to me, they're one and the same. That's a discussion yeah. ender. You can you can revere the Jewish people and respect the incredible experience that they've been through in this earth, good and bad, and be repelled by what the state of Israel is doing. They're different things. And if we don't give ourselves permission to understand that difference, we'll never be able to have a discussion. Yeah, and it's it's so fascinating how I, I was struck by. I mean, I have spent, as you know, I'm a news junkie like you do, uh, mm-hmm. you are, but I have avoided this issue for a long, long time, and it's only really since October 11th. Seven, I can't remember the date, to, uh, the, the Hamas invasion, uh, yep. that I really began paying attention to this and paying attention yep. to the religion and the culture and the vocabulary. And it is yep. not easy. I, I've, I've really never encountered an issue that's this complicated and this uh, fraught with emotion. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the irony that so many people are struck by is given the incredible you know, um, persecution of the Jewish people throughout history, not just World War II, throughout history, how then do they, not they, but the government of Israel tolerate, you know, what's going on now? And I know it's, I mean, it's, it's a challenge to even talk about it. I mean, it is, you know, it is. And I just think we have to be able to separate them. Yeah. Well, we're going to have uh, – we've done a lot. We're going to – I'm looking for 
I think we need to go back in history, which I did last night, to the Balfour Declaration and all the way mm-hmm. back to 1917. And I think we need to do a show with a historian on exactly uh, go way back in time to and figure out uh, if we can figure out the past and understand it better, we can figure out a better future. Yeah, uh, well, that's Bill, a good idea. One, one quick suggestion is there's a scholar yeah. at UVM who has made a lifetime study of Raoul Hilberg who wrote ah. The Destruction of the European Jew, and he might be a really interesting guest. Okay. Uh, Bill, what's next for you? You're writing about this. What else are you doing? Um, I got my wood in. That's the key. I've, <laughs> all my life I've heated with wood, and that's one of the things that keeps me sane. I've got six cords yep. of wood in the basement. Nice. And um, other than that, I'm just trying to limit and focus. I'm working on a couple of film projects. But, um, you know, Good. like you, just onward and upward. Okay. Bill, thank you for joining us. Bill Schubert, uh, writer, commentator, and many other other things that are valuable to Vermont. Uh, and he grew up in Morrisville, so he's a natural WDEV guest. Bill, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Take care. Okay. Bill Schubert, uh, great guest. Uh, very articulate, and uh, we can learn a lot from reading his columns. You can find him at Schubert.com. His bio is there, uh, and uh, all of his books are there. He writes fiction. So uh, it's he's a great resource. Coming up, Louise, Louise Glick has died. She was the poet, lived in Vermont, and uh, we're going to talk to a fellow poet, Dan Chazen, coming up about the legacy of Louise Glick. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Louise Glick died on October 13th. She was a poet and an essayist. Now, I'm not a poet. Nor do I read a lot of poetry. All I can tell you is that Louise Glick won the Nobel Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, many other prizes, taught at Yale, among other places, and was the Poet Laureate of the United States and the Poet Laureate of Vermont. She split her time between Cambridge, Mass., Berkeley, California, and greatly Montpelier. Google told me she used the prize money from the Nobel Prize to buy her house in Montpelier. Turns out, I had often walked right past her in the grocery store without knowing who she was, which was likely how she preferred it. That was enough for me when I read about her death. Uh, That was not enough for me when I read about her death. So I called up Dan Chasen, another poet born in Burlington, who knew Glick, and I asked him to come on the show and talk about her. Dan Chasen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, I, let me just give the audience more of your bio. You're the author of six books, uh, much of it poetry, and you're currently working on a nonfiction book about politics and and change in American life, uh, and it's focusing on Bernie Sanders, uh, based in part on his own early your own early memories of. Bernie when he was the mayor of Burlington, and that is going to be published uh, in 2025. So um, so you're no stranger to Vermont and no stranger to – you're currently a, a professor of, of literature at Wellesley College. But thanks for coming on, and tell us about Louise Glick, if you would. Sure. Yeah, it's great to be on with you. Um, well, I do think she's a distinctly Vermont figure, so – we could start there. Um, yeah. She and she and Bernie don't have a lot in common, but I suppose very broadly, you could say that they came here as the you know as part of the same wave of people looking to make something new, you know, make something either on the page or in social space. And Vermont, um, you know, afforded that opportunity to a lot of young people in the '60s and '70s. So they were. Uh, you know, she, she arrived, um, to teach at Goddard and, um, you can find in her early books, not so much the very first book, but the second and third and fourth, just exquisite, 
uh, renderings of the landscape and <clears throat> natural world around Plainfield, uh, where she lived and did most of her writing. Um, yeah, it's it's an astonishing uh, career, great body of work. It's about 60 years or so of writing of a person giving you their dispatches from um, almost confiding in you from their inner life and thoughts. Um, everything from, you know, her very first poems, which were published uh, when she was still a teenager. Uh, and she was 19 when her first poem appeared in The New Yorker. <clears throat> Those poems are, well, they're about being a teenager. They're about going on dates. They're about um, family life as seen from a child's point of view while still a child. Um and we just move on through the phases of life with her marriage, uh, her raising her son. Uh, there are, is a great book about her divorce called Meadowlands. Um, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, I could go on, but it's uh, it, it, it's just an, like any great poet's huge body of work. It's um, hard to generalize. It's just one surprise after another. I. Excuse me. I I uh, watched a YouTube clip of her after she won the Nobel. She was at her home in Cambridge, and the press was camped out on her front door, and she was just uh, sort of alternately terrified and also disdainful of the attention that she was getting. Yeah. Tell us about uh, her approach. Why why did she react that way to public? Uh, yeah. popularity and celebrity. What was her reaction to that? Sure. I was interested to hear you say um, when you introduced uh, the segment that you would see her at, was it at the co-op in Montpelier probably? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I, I didn't know who she was. Times. Oh yeah. I saw her there a couple of times. I'd also sometimes take her to the Whole Foods in Central Square in Cambridge and to go grocery shopping with Louise, you saw well, you saw the sensibility at, at work. I mean, she was painstaking. She had, she knew exactly the quantities, exactly the qualities that she was looking for. And I don't know, a melon or something like this, but, but it's yeah. probably good. You didn't, you didn't interrupt her in that process because that is a, in a way an insight um, into why she required, uh, well, she required both privacy and friendship. I would say she did not love public acclaim, public appearance, because she liked to deal with people one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. She liked, um, it's funny, We there was a memorial service for her in Cambridge about a week ago, full of her friends, and maybe 50, 100 people there, I would say. Very few of us had ever met one another, but we'd been hearing about the others <laughs> For decades, because she yeah. liked to have dinner one on one and it would start early and it would go late and the conversation would become very intricate and evolve and evolve across its arc. So, yeah, I think the reason she was shy of publicity was that she required concentration, um, whether that was just her looking at the page or whether that was her in dialogue with another single <laughs> individual. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. I mean, it's what makes hum the human condition work. I mean, my own spouse will not go into the food co-op with me because I consider it a the the, the high social occasion of my day. Oh man, and, uh, yeah. And Lu Louise probably thought of it exactly the the opposite. She did, and you probably make all kinds of errors. Could come home with the wrong, I don't know, milk or cheese or something, right? No. Oh, oh, absolutely. No shopping list, uh, just off the top of the head. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think you guys are opposite styles. But the co-op is there to uh, to sustain all different kinds of individual styles, right? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, like a lot of people in central Vermont, yeah. he, she came here uh, because, in some way because of Goddard College. And God, there's right. just a long lineage of people to that yes. who did that. Yes. Yes. Yes, she did. Uh, she was hired when she was, uh, I think, on the strength of her first book. So this was, I don't have the exact year. I think it might have been 68 or 69. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, she was part of that incredible ferment there. She knew Mamet, um, told stories about Mamet when he, David Mamet when he was there. Um, but she also, you know, she was very knit into the community. Um, this was a community where if your neighbor, you know, was able to, I don't know, ply your driveway and you could bake, then maybe you could work out some kind of reciprocity. Um, and she, she, she loved that and wrote a lot about that ethic of reciprocity and in rural life. So I think that and she was not a hippie, that's for sure. I mean, if we think about Goddard in the 60s and early 70s, we maybe think of some, we think we have a mental picture that she was not, um, what you're picturing. Um, but she loved being in the kind of breadbasket of that part of the world and knit into the community there. I wonder, uh, before our break, I wonder if you could tell us about her Pulitzer Prize winning poem, The Wild Iris. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful um, book length sequence. Um, it's been compared to a song cycle. They're short lyric poems. Um, they are very much recognizably set in the seasons and landscapes of central Vermont. Um, they're about, uh, you know, she would. I suppose you'd say she was a nature poet because she uses insignia of the natural world in her work. But what interests her is the human trauma that is suggested by the natural world. So she has poems spoken by flowers in the spring who are, you know, have weathered something like a death and are being reborn into the world. And they give speech to that um, astonishing uh, rebirth. So it's a great, 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 intense, beautiful, mesmerizing book. Uh, she, she also wrote about. I mean, she was. She, oh gosh, she was married. She uh, yeah was was uh, entangled with the New England Culinary Institute, and there was a divorce, and and a, right the, the business went away. And she wrote about that. Uh, I mean, yes. we all, those of us in the Montpelier area, sort of you know, gossip about that and, and remember it and Fran Voigt and Ellen. And, but right. uh, she wrote about it, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she did. Um, in fact, the poems of that period are my favorite of hers. Um, the, the, the book that really, I, it's so gauche to put it this way, but that kind of chronicles her divorce. Right. It's called, is called Meadowlands. I don't know if we have, time to talk about it now or after the break, but it's, um, she made this amazing discovery, which is that she could kind of plot the story of her marriage, um, kind of trellis it to the story of the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. Um, and yeah, that was a complicated choice because it meant that she had to distribute the point of view among mainly three characters, um, Penelope, the woman who waits for her husband to return home after decades away, or uh, Odysseus, who's the king and soldier coming home to his kingdom, and really importantly, the son who misses the father. Um, his name is Telemachus in Homer. So in that book, she has figured out a way to sort of fragment her voice into three, um, you know, three distinct points of view. And no one of them has the moral high ground. So this isn't, you know, a typical kind of memoir. Whoever gets, whoever is the spurned party would um, make a case against the, you know, the, the person who, 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 who left. This book is not that way at all. Um, the, the husband is fairly presented. The wife is fairly presented. The son um is a, 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 just an incredible invention. I could read you um, a poem in his voice if you wanted to hear it. Yeah, why don't we do that? So this is from, um, I was saying this is from her book about her divorce, um, and it's pegged very loosely to the Odyssey. So there's a woman's voice, the wife, there's a man's voice, the husband, and then there's a son's voice. And those voices are given the names that Homer gives them. So this is the son speaking about his parents, it's called Telemachus's guilt. 
Um, and I'll just say one thing before I start reading it, which is that Louise spent decades um, in analysis. Um, I don't know too much about what style, but I know it was I, I know it has been described as Freudian analysis. So that meant that she took a long, slow, silent, uh, patient path towards insight. And this is the kind of fruit of that process, I think. This this young man's uh, point of view on his parents' lives is very uh, analytic, I think. So it's called Telemachus's Guilt. Patience of the sort my mother practiced on my father, which in his self-absorption he mistook for tribute, though it was, in fact, a species of rage. Didn't he ever wonder why he was so blocked in expressing his native abandon? It infected my childhood. Patiently, she fed me. Patiently, she supervised the kindly slaves who attended me regardless of my behavior, an assumption I tested with increasing violence. It seemed clear to me that from her perspective, I didn't exist, since my actions had no power to disturb her. I was the envy of my playmates. In the decades that followed, I was proud of my father for staying away, even if he stayed away for the wrong reasons. I used to smile when my mother wept. I hope now she could forgive that cruelty. I hope she understood how like her own coldness it was, a means of remaining separate from what one loves deeply. Thank you. Uh, sure. Dan, what have we lost in losing Louise Glick? What do we lose when we lose someone like her? Well, yeah, you, you, you lose this voice. Um, luckily, we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of prose, poetry and prose, that we can look at and read and take in um, to regain it. And, you know, you mentioned a clip on YouTube, Kevin. There are wonderful readings by Louise um, on YouTube, including one I want to recommend is uh, the reading of five poems she did after she won the Nobel. Um, it, it's about 15 minutes long, and uh, I've almost never heard her voice. Um, so, you know, you wait for the next thing to come, and we'd all, her readers and friends, uh, wait with her, and um, well, we've lost whatever that next book was going to be, but we've got a lot to catch up on. And the work is just beginning with a poet like Glick. You know, her archives are at Yale, her letters will be published, her correspondence, new poems will emerge from the papers. You know, it's just exciting to see what will happen next. Uh, it's uh, like Bob Dylan, she yes. declined to go to Sweden to accept the prize. Uh, I think she wrote she wrote an acceptance speech but she did not attend the ceremony did she well it, it in fact she was planning to go <laughs> last fall uh the the swedish academy uh, was inviting i think two two years of, of of laureates back and she got covid so she wasn't able to go but wow. um yeah so that was the story on that but yes i would love to have seen her shaking the hand of the king of sweden but it didn't come to pass <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, my loss for not knowing her, but uh, but so many of us did. And yeah, uh, yeah. Dan, uh, you, why, before I let you go, can you comment at all on the Bernie book and how's it going? Or are you sworn to secrecy by your publisher? Oh, no, no, no. I'll be happy to tell you. It's uh, I just got him elected. So, uh, you know, I'm painstakingly okay. working my way through time. I, I'm in 1981. Um, it's a weird book. Oh, that's, a, it's, that's a big day. Oh, yeah. It was a big day. A lot of fun to tell that, those stories. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's um, I grew up right in the city of Burlington, so I have firsthand memories of him as a teenager. He was pretty involved with teenagers across, across the city. So weird book, not really a biography. It's more of a story of the political opportunities that came to, you know, to light and that he made um, and of some of the backroom shenanigans in Burlington politics. Um, so. 
it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm having fun doing it. Good. We we can't wait, and uh, it's it's needed because I think the literature around Bernie is uh, superficial uh, at best. Yeah. We need a deep. We need a deeper dive. So. Oh, great. Dan Chazen. Dan Chazen, uh, you're great to join us to talk about Louise Glick and a little bit about Bernie Sanders uh, with an upcoming book. Uh, thank you for joining us to talk about Louise. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. See you on Church Street. That's Dan yeah, Chazen. Indeed. He, he, that's Dan Chazen. He's uh, uh, from Burlington. He's a uh, professor at Wellesley College and knew the poet Louise Glick. And uh, what a treat to have him on to talk about what Louise meant and Louise's poetry and, you know, that pipeline between uh, New York City and Goddard College. Uh, we need to do a show on this. Uh, I'm going to get Jules Rabin on the show and some others. Uh, so many people made their way, made their way from New York to Goddard and are still here and made lives here and raised families here. So that's our show for today. Uh, my thanks to guests, Dan Chasen, Bill Schubart, and Wei Wei Wang, and Tino, whose last name I don't have in front of me, so I'll uh, not say it at the risk of mispronouncing it. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, send me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. The show becomes a podcast at wdevradio.com, so you can listen there anytime. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. Stay tuned uh, for the governor's press conference that's coming up right after this, and then you'll get some Bill Sayer uh, after that. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I have a podcast of my own called Conflict of Interest that examines many of the issues we deal with. And this week, I'm going to try to deal with, we dealt with Robert Kennedy Jr. last week. Now we're going to try to deal with uh, Free Speech and Israel and Hamas. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Lee Cattell and Danny McGivrigan today, and sometimes others, and all the folks at, who make this show possible at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Wednesday. We're, uh, sorry, right back here Friday. We're going to talk about the Montpelier Bridge, local journalism, and the role of local journalism in a democracy and how we need to come together to support it. Uh, I'll be back Friday. It's Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV. WDEV.